Psalm 27, and we'll begin by reading the entire chapter. Of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's ask God's blessing. Oh God, we come to your word and needing you, needing the infallible words of life to breathe into our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we glean from this ancient and inspired text exactly what you would have for us today, that we would be a people who are more and more captivated by your beauty. We do pray for Pastor Eli, that you would be with him in his illness, heal him, and strengthen him. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I begin with this question. What captures your gaze? What has your attention? Look at verse 4 with me that says, One thing have I asked of the Lord. Well, what is that one thing in your life and in mine? This is like David saying, there, if, if, I need many things. I need protection. I need food. I need air. But there's one thing. If there's one thing I could ask of God, it would be this. And I wonder, in my own life and in your life, how we would answer that one thing. What is that thing that drives us? That gets us up in the morning? That makes us tick? The Puritan Richard Sibbs said of verse 4 that this verse is a breathing after God. 
It's like when the psalmist says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, O God. I wonder in this day and age where we're so distracted, if we could relate to that. Do we long after God? Do we see God as worthy of our attention, our focus, our gaze? I ask you again this morning, what things in your life grab your attention? Where are your priorities? Uh, You can use many metrics, I'm sure, to measure that. Where you spend your time or how you spend your time. Where you spend your money. What are the things in life that you would do with all of your heart and all gusto, whereas the things in life that you sort of do with a mediocre effort? What are the things that excite you, that you're willing to get up early for, that you're willing to drive to, that you're willing to spend money on? And what are those things that, quite frankly, bore you and that are just sort of things you do out of habit because you have to? And when we relate this to God, I think it's, it's clear what convicts us by the Spirit. We realize that if we take God at His word, He's the one that should drive us. He's the one that should capture our attention. And yet, when we look within our hearts, often there's a war, right? There's a battle. Because we're so distracted. We're excited about the things of the world. And often we give God spare change, spare time, and whatever energy is left over. And you might say, but what's wrong with that? Can I just go to church, give my offering, say a quick prayer, obey the commandments, generally speaking? And why all this talk about affections? Why all this talk about emotions? Why all this talk about priorities? Well, because it's biblical. Because God has so much more for you. If you're here today or you're hearing this sermon recorded and you're just content with with living a mediocre life, I'm not here to shame you, condemn you, or guilt you. I'm here to tell you that God has something better for you. Something more worthy, something more joyful that will give you contentment in the midst of any battle you are facing. You might say, well, I can't relate. You know, look at verse 4 again. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Uh, That seems so foreign to me, you might say. I mean, I I love God. I think the Bible is interesting, but I I don't know if I could say that. I want to point your attention to the first two words of this psalm. Before verse 1. It says, of David. So before you think that verse 4 is written by some superstar who who never sinned, understand who is writing this psalm. David is not saying that all day long, for 24 hours, all he thinks about is God. And he's bragging about it. No, no. Verse 4 is a prayer. Verse 4 is a desire. Verse 4 is a desire that we ought to have. That though there are times when the world allures me, though there are times where I might even be bored with God, my desire of all desires is that the Lord would give me more hunger for Him. That I would see Him as beautiful. More beautiful than 
anything this world has to offer. David wrote this. David the adulterer. So men here, if you're saying, I can't relate to verse 4 because I struggle with lust. So did David. I can't relate to this because I struggle with laziness. So did David. David abdicated his responsibilities, looked across the way, saw Bathsheba, lusted after her, used his power to bring her to him, committed adultery, and had her husband killed. He was a sinner. He was far from perfect. And yet his one thing, his desire, was to know God more and more. Brothers and sisters, visitors, regular attenders, Saved, unsaved, I address you all. The most important thing you can have in this world is a relationship with God. Everything else is boring. But everything else will lie to you and make it seem like this is more important. This is more worthy of your time. This is more worthy of your energy. And I pray that the Lord would use his inspired texts to remind us of those lies So that we would choose God over everything else. So let's mine this chapter. I have on the outline three things about gazing upon the beauty of God. This psalm gives us reasons to gaze upon his beauty. Also, the blessings of gazing upon his beauty. The way of gazing on his beauty. And the promise of gazing on his beauty forever. So what are some reasons We have to be convinced in our mind, right? What are some reasons why we should gaze upon the beauty of God? Well, in no particular order, the first one is because God invites us to do so. Look with me in verse 8. Verse 8. It says, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Uh, This is sort of an invitation and a response to the invitation. Notice in verse 8 how there are quotes around seek my face. David is bringing to mind something God has said. And God doesn't just say this to David. The commentators tell us that verse 8, seek my face, is written in a plural sense. So in other words, David is calling to mind that God has told his people Israel, seek my face. This has been God's message to his people throughout the Old Testament. Seek my face. Seek my face. And so David in verse 8 is saying, God, I know that you told us to seek your face. I gladly accept your invitation. I'm responding to this. See, God is the one who takes initiative. God is the great initiator. If you are in Christ today, it's not because you took the first step. It's because God sought you. We love because he first loved us. Just as he told his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. So God says, seek my face. Look, we are sinners, right? And the Bible tells us that sin has separated us from God. God is under no obligation to draw near to us. As a matter of fact, God, God would not want to infect his presence with our sins. But God is also loving and merciful. And he makes the first move. He moves towards sinful humanity. And he says to us, seek my face. Seek my face. And yet we learn. 
Romans chapter 3, when Paul expounds on the nature of man, and he says they're all sinners. He says, there is none who seeks after God. So God gives this invitation to the world, but we love our sins so much. We love darkness rather than light, that in our sinful human nature, we want nothing to do with God. So God must turn on the light. God must take our stony hearts and melt them into hearts of, of flesh. God must take our blind eyes and open them by the power of the Spirit to, to show us our need for Him. And so take heart, brothers and sisters, if you believe in Christ today, if you can say, I am one of God's because of my faith in Christ you would not have chosen Him if the Holy Spirit did not come upon you and open your eyes to see His worth and beauty. God invites us to have a relationship with Him because it is the best thing for us. Oh yes, we need food, we need water, we need money, we need jobs, we need houses. But we can have all those things and then perish for all of eternity. The greatest need of mankind is a relationship with God. God is not some distant creator who just set the world in motion and left us to our own devices. God is not some sort of a force, some special sort of science fiction force that just made all things. God is a personal being, a personal being in whom is wrapped up all the attributes of love and justice and perfection. And He invites sinners like me and you into a relationship with Him. There, there's, there's nothing in this world that can compare to that. There's no concert you can wait online for, no Broadway play, no amusement park, no TV show, no Super Bowl that will ever compare to sinful mankind having a personal relationship with the God of this universe. The God who knows the number of hairs on your head, who knows all the names of the stars, invites you to, hit, to seek His face. Now what does it mean to seek His face? God is a spirit, so He doesn't have a body like us. But His face signifies His personality. And, and I ask you, when you pray, are you more prone to seek His hand or seek His face. See, Psalm 145, which was our reading today, I think verse 16 says, You open your hand and satisfy the desires of all living things. And yes, God invites us also to seek His hand. Seeking His hand means we seek His provision. We pray for healing. We pray for, for, for food. We pray for that job that we applied to. Those are all good and well. We should pray for one another. But before we seek God's hand, as if He's just a dispenser of things... The Bible invites us to seek His face, to know Him on a personal level, to be enraptured by who He is as a person. And so first, the reason why we should gaze on His beauty is because He invites us to, but related to that is we ought to gaze upon God's beauty because secondly, God is beautiful. And here's something that I don't think we think enough about. But God is beautiful. 
How often do you think about the beauty of God? Do you see God as more of a taskmaster? Okay, I've got to, got to put my time in prayer, read my Bible, go to church once a week. Hopefully God will be happy with that. Or do you see God as beautiful, captivating your attention? What are those things, again, in the world where it's so hard for you to look away? Maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon or the top of the Empire State Building. You looked out of an airplane window or you look at the stars through a telescope. Fill in the blank, whatever it is that, that you just love to stare at. I'm telling you, by the authority of God's word, that God is more beautiful than any of those things. If you think that the stars are beautiful, understand God made those stars If you take a microscope and look at the the cells and the design of of how our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made, understand God made those bodies. He made those cells. God is beautiful. Listen to what Scripture says. You don't have to turn here, but there's several verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 16, 29 says, Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 50 verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. It says in in Zechariah 9, On that day, the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they will shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. Again, I ask this morning, do you ever think, do I ever think about the beauty of God? Frankly, I think the answer is we don't think about it enough. I think it's missing in a lot of our day-to-day thinking that God is beautiful. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about beauty. He said, I'm afraid that the idea of the beauty of God has been all but eclipsed in our contemporary culture, both in the secular community and in the church as well. I've said many times that there are three dimensions of the Christian life that the scriptures are concerned about. The good, the true, and the beautiful. Yet we tend to cut off that third, the beautiful, from the other two. Some Christians reduce their concern for the things of God purely to the ethical realm, to a discussion of righteousness and goodness with respect to our behavior. Others are so concerned about the purity of doctrine that they've preoccupied with truth at the expense of behavior or at the expense of the holy. Rarely, at least in many Protestant circles, do we find a focus on the beautiful. So I think it... It's pretty evident that in our circles, we we may have good doctrine. We may have the right truths behind how we should behave. But I, I challenge you this morning, do you think about those things merely as this is right and wrong and that's it? Or do you recognize that what is right in God's eyes is also beautiful? It's lovely. It's enjoyable. It's something that we can be captivated by. Because God... In his very nature is beautiful. We've at least two ways in which God is beautiful, two general ways. One is that he is perfect in all of his attributes. And two, he is transcendent in his nature. 
What do I mean that he's perfect in his attributes? Your attributes and mine are our characteristics, our our behaviors, the things that make us who we are. All human beings, because we're made in the image of God, have have a sense of these things. We have a sense of love, for example. We know what it's like to love. We know what it's like to be in love. We know what it's like to receive love. We also know what it's like to be forsaken and abandoned. We know what it's like when people who we thought loved us betray us. We know what it's like who people who love us are impatient with us, short with us, selfish toward us. So we understand love, but it's not perfect. God, the Bible says, is love. Which means his love is perfect. His love is eternal. His love is without strings attached. When he pours out his love upon you, he loves you, period. He loves you in your sin. He loves you despite your sin. Nothing will separate you from God's love. God doesn't have a bad day. God doesn't say, I ran out of love today. God doesn't grow weary of loving his sinful creation. God is beautiful because his attributes are perfect. And love is perfect in God. God is beautiful because justice is perfect in God. We all have a sense of justice, of right and wrong, of wanting to see criminals pay, of wanting to see uh, people uh, brought to justice because of crimes they've committed in the world or against us. But we know that even our own justice system is broken. We know there are people that pay penalties for things they didn't do. And then there are people who get away with things that they did do. God's justice is perfect. God is just. God will always be just. And because God's justice is perfect, God is beautiful. God's holiness is perfect. We who try to live the Christian life and the power of the Spirit, who walk by faith and not by sight, oh, it's beautiful to be holy, isn't it? But how far short we fall. Even people in our lives who've discipled us, who've pastored us, who've preached with us and to us and for us, will let us down. Your pastors are imperfect. Your deacons are imperfect. Your disciple makers are imperfect. But God's holiness is perfect. The Bible says, in him is no darkness at all. He is just 100% holy all the time. The angels are, are flying around his throne, according to Isaiah 6, shouting, holy, 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 for all of eternity. God is beautiful. Perfect in love. Perfect in justice. Perfect in holiness. Perfect in power. How oh, we are so limited. Even in, in, in the modern world in which we live, we have Wi-Fi and airplanes and skyscrapers, right? Like, look how far we've come. But all it takes is a little bit of wind to knock, knock out your Wi-Fi sometimes. I don't know about you, but like sometimes I'm just... We pay for Wi-Fi and can't get on. Just takes a few natural disasters, God forbid, to wipe out entire cities that were built with human ingenuity. Planes... Sadly, still crash. 
Humans have power because God has power and we're created in His image. But our power is limited and finite. But God's power is infinite and unlimited and eternal. And God can do all things. God can do the greatest of miracles in that He can take hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. He can take rebellious sinners like the Apostle Paul who used to kill Christians and totally transform their lives. God's power is perfect. God's justice is perfect. God's holiness is perfect. God's love is perfect. Brothers and sisters, God is beautiful. J.R. Miller said this. He said, Every revelation of God that is made to us is a revelation of beauty. Everywhere in nature In the flower that blooms, in the bird that sings, in the dewdrop that sparkles, in the star that shines, in the sunset that burns with splendor, we see reflections of God's beauty. As Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Augustine said, You, Lord, created heaven and earth. They are beautiful because you are beauty. They are good because you are goodness. The next time you catch a beautiful sunset or look into the stars and see something beautiful, may it draw you and I to praise God, for He is the one who made the stars and the sun. God is beautiful because His attributes are perfect. He's also beautiful because He's transcendent. That means He's above us. That means even though we're created in His image, He is other than us. He's he's a trinity. He's an eternal trinity consisting of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Each member of the trinity being co-equal and co-eternal with one another. And for generations, Christians have had a difficult time expounding exactly what that means. And that's okay. Because we cannot explain God fully. The Bible says in Romans, how inscrutable are your ways. How incomprehensible are your ways. There are things about God that are too lofty for us. And that is why He's worthy of worship. God transcends his creation. One author said this, The desirability and loveliness of his nature in all infinite perfections as the pleasantness offers itself to his own understanding and the understanding of men and angels. Even angels desire to look into these things. God is beautiful. God invites us to seek his face. And thirdly, the world is unsatisfying. Why should we gaze on God's beauty? Because everything else is unsatisfying. Oh, I know there's, there's marketing ploys everywhere. Billboards, magazines, YouTube videos trying to tell you, you need this to be happy. You need to pay for this. You need to go here. You need to have this. But we know those things cannot satisfy. Anyone who drinks the waters of this world will be thirsty again. But the one who drinks of the water that Christ gives will never thirst again. The context of Psalm 27 is that King David is running away from his foes. They are breathing out violent threats. They are lying about him. They want to kill him. David wrote this psalm seeking protection from the world. That's why he says in verse 1, or verses 2 and 3, he says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, that means to consume me, My adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Verse 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war arise against me, yet I will be confident. 
And verse 5 says, He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Did you hear what David is saying? A war against me. An army around me. The day of trouble. And you and I may not be kings or military generals, so we may not be able to relate to that. But there must be days in our lives where we can resonate with this. Where we feel that everything is against us. And we need protection from this dangerous, sinful world. And yet, no matter how many times we are burnt by the world, it still draws us back. It allures us. It lies to us. Isn't that how the fall began? With God telling Adam and Eve, you can eat any tree of the garden. But just not this one. And that was the very one that Satan used to allure them away from all the good things that God had given. The Apostle John tells us that all that is in the world are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And it looks good, like that fruit looked good to Eve. But what lay behind that fruit was the sting of death. Death, destruction, misery, everything we see in this world, all the crimes and the tragedies can be traced back to that moment where man abandoned God in favor of following his and her own lust. So the world unsatisfies or leaves us unsatisfied. Our hearts are restless, aren't they? We're looking for things and people and events to sort of fill that void. Our attention becomes grabbed by people who we think will solve our problems. That's why politicians and celebrities can often become very messianic. People flock to them like they're the answer. If if, if just this guy is elected, or if this, this law is passed... But our heroes will always let us down. There's so many rich and famous people in this world, and yet so many of them are miserable. Miserable. Look at the lives. Just take any random sampling of 10 rich and famous celebrities and look at their Wikipedia pages and look at their their family history and their drug abuse and their turmoil. And you say, "What, what what is money and fame doing? And then for some reason... We are still prone to, to chase after money and fame. Oh, but if I made it, made it if I win the lottery, I won't, I won't be irresponsible. Look, those things will not satisfy you. They will fall short. All of those things fade away. You can't take your money with you. That's why Jeremiah says this in chapter 9, one of my favorite verses, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows God. We're all in this room at different levels of socioeconomic statuses, different amounts of debt we have or don't have, different jobs, different houses. And the world may use those things to put you in this camp or that camp. But if you know God, you have everything you need. Don't forget that. Jeremiah even says boast in that, right? Like we're not to boast and be arrogant, but if there's one thing that we are allowed to boast in, it's in knowing God. That's why we sing. 
That's why we come to church. That's why we proclaim the gospel. Because he is worthy of our boasting. Because he is beautiful. Now what are some of the blessings that we receive from gazing on God's beauty? I'll go through these quickly. The psalm pretty much explains itself. One of the first blessings of gazing on God's beauty is that we find protection and hope. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Verse 5 tells us that he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. That's protection. Verse 11 and 12, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. David is basically saying this, I feel hopeless because of my situation, an army against one person. But, Lord, if you give me your presence, I will have hope. Hope is something that is so valuable, the world cannot offer you. The Bible says in Thessalonians that we grieve, but we don't grieve like the world who has no hope. So those of you who have lost loved ones, you know the, the, the sadness and the sorrow that comes with losing a loved one. And it's okay to grieve. It's okay to mourn. There's a time for that. But the difference between how a Christian grieves and how a non-Christian grieves is that we grieve with hope. Because we know that beyond the grave, there is Christ who conquered death. We know that all who put their trust in Christ, though they may die physically, yet they shall live. And the world cannot offer that to you. And so gazing upon God's beauty gives you hope and protection in the midst of any of the dangers of this world. And in that, the next thing is that we find confidence and courage. Verse 2 and 3 talk about how even though the enemy is coming towards me, they're the ones who are going to fall. How does David know that? Like If you were standing in the middle of a field and hundreds of soldiers were charging you with swords and, and weapons, would you say, oh, they're all going to fall? Like, what, where do you get that confidence from? can't come from within you. Verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord, who in their right mind sings a song when they're being attacked. I'll tell you who. People who know God. And people who gaze on his beauty. People whose hearts have been captivated by something so much better than this world. Understand this, brothers and sisters. When we come together and we sing songs, that is our way of expressing to all the demons in the, in the principalities and powers that we're not afraid of you. We're going to sing and make melody to the Lord in the midst of our enemies. That confidence and that courage is given to you by the Lord. And the more you gaze on his beauty, the more courage he gives you. Verse 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. There's no 12-step program to being more brave. I can't offer you practical advice. Do these things and you'll, you'll be more courageous. Your courage and your confidence must come from God himself. And then thirdly, as we gaze upon God's beauty, we then reflect his beauty. Yes, all men and women are created in the image of God. But that image has been marred by our sin. 
In Christ, the Bible says that the image is being renewed after its creator. So if you're a Christian today, you are being more and more restored into the image of God. And who is the image of God but Jesus Christ? So as we become more and more Christ-like by gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, we then reflect His beauty to the world around us. And so I wonder when people come to our church, not just the building, but when they're in our gathering, in our presence corporately or even in our homes individually, is the beauty of God reflected in that? The more we meditate on God's beauty, the more we will reflect His beauty. The less we meditate on His beauty... And, and consume ourselves with the ugliness of this world, what's going to come out? Because out of the heart flows the issues of life, right? So gaze upon his beauty and then reflect that beauty to the world. But then how? What's the way? Like, okay, we, hopefully it's been established that God invites us to gaze on his beauty and there are reasons to do that. And there are blessings that if we do that, but how do we do that? What does it look like to actually gaze upon God's beauty? Well, the the, the wonderful thing about this passage is that what David was actually asking for has been fulfilled. We sang that song right before this sermon, Christ the True and Better. Beautiful words. And the, I think, third or fourth verse, Christ the True and Better David. Every, Every person in the Old Testament points to him in some way. David here who's the king of Israel just like Jesus Christ is the king of kings is asking in verse 4 to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple now that might be easy to gloss over because we associate Old Testament temple but remember the temple was built by Solomon David's son so when David wrote verse 4 there was no temple in Israel But yet the word temple appears throughout the Old Testament, even prior to Solomon's temple. So what does he mean by inquire in his temple? Well, again, throughout the Bible, the word temple has signified a dwelling place for God. In some ways, the Garden of Eden was a temple because God dwelt with man there. In the the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, the tabernacle served as a temple because God dwelt with his people. We know about the the pillar of cloud and the fire by night. Then after Solomon builds the temple, that becomes the place where God dwells with his people. But all of those things were a foreshadow of something better to come. And in the New Testament, in, in 1 Corinthians, it actually says to us that we are the temple. Now when I say that, I don't I don't mean these four walls necessarily. Whether we meet here or in a cafeteria or outside in the park. But because God in the new covenant has given us his Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling in our hearts, we then become collectively the dwelling place for God. God is walking in and out of this pasture as it were. He is shepherding us. He is here. Yes, he's omnipresent. Yes, absolutely. But in a unique way, when God's people gather, there is the Lord. When two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You are the temple. We are God's temple. We are God's dwelling place. 
And so, what King David longed for, you and I already have, by virtue of our union with Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you don't get anything else today, please understand this. Gazing on God's beauty is fulfilled by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. When the disciples said, Lord, show us the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews tells us that God used to speak in various ways, including prophets, but now has spoken to us by His Son, the express image of God. Colossians tells us that He is the image of the invisible God. John chapter 1 says, No one has seen God, but the only begotten God has made Him known. When you gaze upon Jesus, you gaze upon God, because Jesus is God. So yes, there's all the great things we can say about theology proper. That is, God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is love. But then when God comes to earth in flesh, and we read about Him in Matthew, and in Mark, and in Luke, and in John, and we see His healing, and His miracles, and we see how He interacts with His enemies, and how He treats His disciples. We see His gentle and lowly character. We hear His sermons. You are gazing upon the beauty of God. You are are getting a glimpse, the already not yet, into the life of God. And if you emulate Christ, then you will radiate God's beauty in this crooked world. We can gaze upon God's beauty as we behold His Son, Jesus Christ. And yes, we ought to do that in our own personal lives. But in, in, in answering David's prayer in verse 4, this starts with the gathering of God's people. As we gather together, and Christ is shown forth from this pulpit by the gospel being preached, and He is shown forth in the visible signs of the communion each week, the, the bread representing His body, the, the, the wine representing His blood, as we sing songs about all the things that Jesus has done, By faith, we are gazing upon the beauty of God. And that's why, Lord, that's that's why, that's why we we beat this drum so much at this church. We really stress, come to church, come to church. There's no ulterior motive there. This is God saying to you, seek my face in my temple. This is what's best for you. And I hope that when you see that, It renews your mind about the priority of the church in your life and the responsibility that your church has to preach Christ to you every week. The way of gazing at God's beauty is fulfilled. But I want to even raise the stakes even higher and encourage you even more. Because, Because even though it's been fulfilled, our sin still keeps us Right? Sort of in the dark. Actually, Paul says, we see through a glass dimly or darkly. What you have here with the ability to see God's beauty in the face of Christ is still a glimmer of what you will have for eternity. The promise of gazing on God's beauty is that you and I will be able to do this unhindered forever. There will be a time when either you pass or the Lord comes back and you spend all of eternity with Him 
where you'll be able to gaze on his beauty and nothing will distract you. There'll be no distractions. You'll be able to pray and not get bored. You'll be able to sing and not get tired. One day, we will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord forever. The ugliness of this world will be no more. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Pastor Eli was going to preach from Revelation, so it's only fitting we, we end here. But as you're turning there, I just want to encourage you. So much of what we considered this morning, I think we know in our heads, but it's hard sometimes to apply it to our hearts. We walk out of here and there are things to deal with in our families. There's work and school Monday morning, right around the corner. There are burdens we have. And you wonder, is this all worth it? I want you to know that it is worth it. That a mind and a heart that is set upon God can have joy and peace wherever you go. You you come here in a sense to, to refuel. You go out to your places of work tomorrow. You say, well, when I'm at work, I don't have the time to stare at God's beauty. I can't. If I read the Bible, my my boss is going to tell me I'm not doing my job. No, do your job. Do your job well. Take care of your family. Take care of your family well. Serve the body and those in need and do it well. But do it while you think about the beauty of God. My prayer for you and me is that the beauty of God would drive all that we do. And we would be so captivated by his beauty that we would, it wouldn't even be a difficult thing for us to let go of those things in the world that rob us of our time. In the fight against sin, it's often, you know, we, we fight against the sin, the temptations, the lust, the greed, the anger. It almost becomes like a, like a drudgery. But if you start to see your sin as ugly and unfulfilling in light of the beauty of God, and you desire God more and more, then your sin can be conquered. So stop feeding your sin and gaze upon the beauty of God. Because one day, this is what we will do all the time. And nothing will hinder us from seeing His beauty. We see now through a dark glass, but one day we will see face to face. Look with me in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen.